Chapter 15 of Aircraft and Submarines by Willis J. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aboard a Submarine. Submarines have been compared to all kinds of things, from a fish to a cigar. Life on them has been described in terms of the highest elation as well as of the deepest depression. Their operation and navigation, according to some claims, require a veritable combination of mechanical, electrical, and naval genius, not only on the part of the officers, but even on that of the simplest oiler, while others make it appear as if a submarine was at least as simple to handle as a small motor-boat, the truth concerning all these matters lies somewhere between these various extremes. It is quite true that except on the very latest submerged cruisers built by the Germans, the space for the men operating a submarine is painfully straightened. They must hold to their positions almost like a row of peas in a pod. From this results the gravest strain upon the nerves, so that it has been found in Germany that after a cruise a period of rest of equal duration is needed to restore the men to their normal condition. Before assignment to submarine duty, too, a special course of training is requisite submarine crews are not created in a day what the interior of the new german submarines with a length of two hundred eighty feet and a beam of twenty six feet may be no man of the anglo-saxon race may know or tell the few who have descended into these mysterious depths will have no chance to tell of them until the war is over nor is it possible during war times to secure descriptions even of our own underwater boats but the interior of the typical submarine may be imagined as in size and shape something like an unusually long street car. Along the sides, where seats would normally be, are packed wheels, cylinders, motors, pumps, machinery of all imaginable kinds, and some of it utterly unimaginable to the lay observer. The whole interior is painted white and bathed in electric light the casual visitor from above seas is dazed by the array of machinery and shrinks as he walks the narrow aisle lest he become entangled in it running on the surface the submarine chamber is filled with a roar and clatter like a boiler shop in full operation the diesel engines are compact and powerful but the racket they make more nearly corresponds to their power than to their size on the surface too the boat rolls and pitches and the stranger passenger unequipped with sea legs grabs for support as a subway rider reaches for a strap on the curves but let the order come to submerge the diesels are stopped the electric motors take up the task spinning noiselessly in their jackets in a moment or two all rolling ceases one can hardly tell whether the ship is moving at all it might for all its motion tells be resting quietly on the bottom if you could disabuse your mind for a moment of the recollection that you were in a great steel cigar heavy laden with explosives and deep under the surface of the sea you would find the experience no more exciting than a trip through the pennsylvania tubes but there is something uncanny about the silence go forward to the conical compartment at the very bow there you will find the torpedo chamber for the submarine like the cigar to which it is so often compared carries its fire at its front tip the most common type of boat will have two or four torpedo tubes in this chamber the more modern ones will have a second torpedo chamber astern with the same number of tubes and carry other torpedoes on deck which by an ingenious device can be launched from their outside cradles by mechanism within the boat in the torpedo chamber are twice as many spare torpedoes as there are tubes made fast along the sides 
Here, too, the anchor winch stands with the cable attached to the anchor outside the boat, and an automatic knife which cuts the cable should the anchor be fouled. Immediately aft of the torpedo chamber, cut off by a watertight partition, is the battery compartment. It gets its name because of the fact that beneath the deck, which is full of traps readily raised, are the electric storage batteries of anywhere from 60 to 260 cells, according to the size of the boat. This room is commonly used as the loafing place for the crew, being regarded as very spacious and empty. In it are nothing but the electric stove, the kitchen sink, the various lockers for food, and all the housekeeping apparatus of the submarine. Mighty trim and compact they all are. The builder of twentieth-century flats, with its kitchenettes and its indoor beds, might learn a good deal from a study of the smaller type of submarine. Next aft comes the officers' staterooms, rather smaller than prison cells, each holding a bunk, a bureau, and a desk. Each holds also a good deal of moisture, for the greatest discomfort in submarine life comes from the fact that everything is dripping with the water resulting from the constant condensation of the air within. The great compartment amidships, given over to machinery, is a place to test the nerves. The aisle down the center is scarcely two feet wide, and on each side are whirling wheels, engines, and electric motors. Only the photographs can give a clear idea of the crowded appearance of this compartment. It contains steering wheels, the gyroscopic compass, huge valves, dials showing depth of submergence, Kingston levers, motor controllers, all polished and shining, each doing its work and each easily thrown out of gear by an ignorant touch. The author once spending the night on a United States man-of-war was shown by the captain to his own cabin, that officer occupying the admiral's cabin for the time. At the head of the bunk were two small electric push-buttons, absolutely identical in appearance and about two inches apart. "'Push this button,' said the captain genially, "'if you want the Jap boy to bring you shaving water or anything else. But be sure to push the right one. If you push the other, you will call the entire crew to quarters at whatever hour of night the bell may ring.' The possibility of mistaking the button rested heavily on the writer's nerves all night. A somewhat similar feeling comes over one who walks the narrow path down the center of the machinery compartment of a submarine. He seems hedged about by mysterious apparatus, a touch of which, or even an accidental jostle, may release powerful and even murderous forces. While the submarine is underway, submerged, the operator at every piece of individual machinery stands at its side ready for action. Here are the gunner's mates at the diving rudder. They watch steadily a big gauge on which a needle which shows how deep the boat is sinking. When the required depth is reached, swift turns of two big brass wheels set the horizontal rudders that check the descent and keep the boat on an even keel. Other men stand at the levers of the Kingston valves, which, when open, flood the ballast tanks with water and secure the submergence of the boat. Most of the underwater boats today sink rapidly on an even keel. The old method of depressing the nose of the boat so as to make a literal dive has been abandoned, partly because of the inconvenience it caused to the men within who suddenly found the floor on which they were standing tilted at a sharp angle, and partly because the diving position proved to be a dangerous one for the boat. In the early days of the submarines, the quarters for the men were almost intolerable. The sleeping accommodations were cramped, and there was no place for the men off-duty to lounge and relax from the strain of constant attention to duty. Man cannot keep his body in a certain fixed position, even though it be not rigid, 
for many hours. This is shown as well at the baseball grounds at the end of the sixth inning when all stretch as it was in the old-time underwater boats. The crews now have space in which to loaf, and even the strain of long silent watches underwater is relieved by the use of talking machines and musical instruments. The efficiency of the boat, of course, is only that of her crew, and since more care and more scientific thought has been given to the comfort of the men, to the purity of the air they breathe, and even to their amusements, the effect upon the work done by the craft has been apparent. Ten years ago, hot meals were unthought of on a submarine. Now, the electric cooker provides for quite an elaborate bill of fare. But ten years ago, the submarine was only expected to cruise for a few hours off the harbor's mouth, carrying a crew of twenty men or less. Now it stays at sea, sometimes for as long as three months. Its crews number often as many as fifty, and the day is in sight when accommodations will have to be made for the housing of at least eighty men in such comparative comfort that they can stand a six-month's voyage without loss of morale or decrease in physical vigor. It is, of course, very rare that a civilian has a chance to be present on a submarine when the latter is making either a real or a feigned attack. Fred B. Pitney, a correspondent of the New York Tribune, was fortunate enough to have this experience, fortunate especially because it was all a game arranged for his special benefit by a French admiral. He writes of this interesting experience in the Tribune of Sunday, May 27, 1917, and at the same time gives a vivid description of a French submarine. It appears that Mr. Pitney was on a small vessel put at his disposal by the French Ministry of Marine to view the defenses of a French naval base. This boat was attacked by what seemed to be an enemy submarine, but later turned out to be a French one which was giving this special performance for Mr. Pitney's information. We read, our officers were experts at watching for submarines, and though the little white wave made by the periscope disappeared, they caught the white wake of the torpedo coming toward the port quarter and sheered off to escape it. The torpedo passed harmlessly by our stern. But the adventure was not ended, for hardly a minute later we heard a shot from off the starboard quarter and, turning in that direction, saw that the submarine had come to the surface and was busily firing at us to bring us to. We stopped without any foolish waste of time in argument. I asked if a boat would be sent to us, or if we would have to get out of our boat. They carry a small folding boat, said the officer to whom I had been talking, but we will have to send our boat. While we were getting our boat over the side, the submarine moved closer in, keeping her gun bearing on us all the time most uncomfortably. The gun stood uncovered on the deck, just abaft the turret. It was quickly coated with grease to protect it when the vessel submerged. It is only the very latest type of submarines that have disappearing guns which go under cover when the vessel submerges and are fired from within the ship, which makes all the more surprising the speed with which a submarine can come to the surface. The men get out on deck, fire the gun, get in again, and the vessel once more submerges. I was in the first boatload that went over to the submarine. From a distance, it looked like nothing so much as a rather long piece of 4 by 8 floating on the water, with another block set on top of it and a length of lathe nailed on the block. It lost none of these characteristics as we neared it. It only gained a couple of ropes along the sides of the 4 by 8 while men kept coming mysteriously out of the block until a round dozen was waiting to receive us. 
The really surprising thing was that the men turned out to be perfectly good French sailors, with a most exceedingly polite French lieutenant to help us aboard the little craft. The vessel we were in was a 500-ton cruising submarine. It had just come from eight months guarding the channel and showed all the battering of eight months of a very rough and stormy career with no time for a lie-up for repairs. It was interesting to see the commander hand the depth gauge a wallop to start it working and find out if the center of the boat was really nine feet higher than either end. We were 54 feet under water and diving when the commander performed that little experiment and we continued to dive while the gauge spun around and finally stopped at a place which indicated approximately that our back was not broken. I suppose that was one of the things my friend the lieutenant referred to when he said life on a submarine was such a sporting proposition. We boarded the submarine over the tail end and balanced our way up the long narrow block, like walking a tightrope, to the turret, where we descended through a hole like the opening into a gas main into a small round compartment about six feet in diameter, exactly in the midship section, which was the largest compartment in the ship. Running each way from it, the length of the vessel were long corridors, some two feet wide. On each side of the corridors were rows of tiny compartments, which were the living and working rooms of the ship. Naturally, most of the space was given up to the working rooms. The officers' quarters consisted of four tiny compartments, two on each side of the after corridor. The first two were the mess room and chart room, and the second pair were the cabins of the commander, a lieutenant, and his second in command, an ensign. Behind them was an electric kitchen, and next came the engines, first two sets of diesel engines, one on each side of the corridor, each of 400 horsepower. These were for running on the surface. Then came four bunks for the quartermasters, and last the electric motors for running under the surface. The motors were run from storage batteries and were half the power of the diesel engines. The quarters of the crew were along the sides of the forward corridor. The floors of the corridor were an unbroken series of trapdoors covering the storage tanks for drinking water, food, and the ship's supplies. The torpedo tubes were forward of the men's quarters. Ten torpedoes were carried. The ammunition for the deck gun was stored immediately beneath the gun, which was mounted between the turret and the first hatch abaft the turret. Besides the turret, there were three hatches in the deck, one forward and two aft. There were thirty-four men in the crew. The men were counted every two hours, as there is great danger of men being lost overboard when running on the surface, and in bad weather they are sometimes counted as often as every half hour. The turret was divided in two sections. In the after part was the main hatch, and behind it a stationary periscope, standing about thirty inches above the surface of the water when the deck was submerged, and only the periscope showing. There was no opening in the forward section of the turret, but the fighting periscope, which could be drawn down into the interior, or pushed up to ten feet above the surface when the vessel was completely submerged, extended through the top. For two hours, turn and turn about, the commander and his second stand watch on the iron grips in the turret, one eye on the periscope, the other on the compass, and this goes on for weeks on end. It is only when they lie for a few hours fifty to seventy-five feet below the surface that they can get some rest, and even then there is no real rest, for one or the other of them must be constantly on duty, testing pipes and gauges, air pressure, water pressure, and a thousand other things. 
when we dropped through the hatch into the interior of the submarine and the cover was clamped down over our heads the commander at once ordered me back into the turret hurry if you want to see her dive he said i climbed into the after section of the turret and fastened my eye to the periscope around the top of the turret was a circle of bull's-eyes and i was conscious of the water dashing against them while the spray washed over the glass of the periscope the little vessel rolled very slightly on the surface though there was quite a bit of sea running i watched the horizon through the periscope and watched for the dive expecting a distinct sensation but the first thing i noticed was that even the slight roll had ceased and i was surprised to see that the bull's-eyes were completely under water the next thing there was no more horizon the periscope also was covered and we were completely beneath the surface did it make you sick the commander asked when i climbed down from the turret and when i told him no he was surprised for he said most men were made sick by their first dive the thing most astonishing to me about that experience was how a submerged submarine can thread its way through a minefield for though the water is luminous and translucent one can hardly make out the black hull of the boat under the turret and a mine would have to be on top of you before you could see it the men who watch for mines must have a sense for them as well as particularly powerful sight we continued to dive until we were sixty-eight feet below the surface too deep to strike any mine and there we ran tranquilly on our electric engines while the commander navigated the vessel and the second in command opened champagne in the two by four mess room after half an hour of underwater work we came near enough the surface for our fighting periscope to stick twenty inches out of the water and searched the lonely horizon for a ship to attack it was not long before we sighted a mine trawler steaming for the harbor and speeded up to overtake her pikers said our commander as we circled twice around the trawler they can't find us five men on the trawler were scanning the area with glasses looking for submarines we could follow all their motions could tell when they thought they had found us and see their disappointment at their mistakes but though we were never more than five hundred yards from them i did not think they were pikers because they did not find us i had tried that hunt for the tiny wave of a periscope no use wasting a torpedo on those fellows said our commander we will use the gun on them how far away can you use a torpedo i asked two hundred yards is the best distance he said never more than five hundred a torpedo is pure guesswork at more than five hundred yards we crossed the bow of the trawler circled around her starboard quarter and came to the surface fired nine shots and submerged again in forty-five seconds the prey secured we ran submerged to the minefield and passed a net barrier to come to the surface well within the harbor and proceed peacefully to our mooring under the shelter of the guns of the land forts life and work on a german submarine is known to us of course only from descriptions in german publications one of these appeared previous to our entry in the war in various journals and was translated and republished by the new york evening post it reads partly as follows u forty seven will take provisions and clear for sea extreme economical radius a first lieutenant with acting rank of commander takes the order in the gray dawn of a february day the hulk of an old corvette with the iron cross of eighteen seventy on her stubby foremast is his quarters in port and on the corvette's deck he is presently saluted by his first engineer and the officer of the watch on the pier the crew of u forty seven await him at their feet the narrow gray submarine lies alongside straining a little at her cables 
Well, we've got our orders at last, begins the commander, addressing his crew of thirty, and the crew grin, for this is U-47's first experience of active service. She has done nothing save trial trips hitherto, and has just been overhauled for her first fighting cruise. Her commander snaps out a number of orders. Provisions are to be taken in up to the neck, fresh water is to be put aboard, and engine room supplies to be supplemented. A mere plank is the gangway to the little vessel. As a commander, followed by his officers, comes aboard, a sailor hands to each a ball of cotton waste, the sign and symbol of a submarine officer, which never leaves his hand. For the steel walls of the craft, the doors, and the companion ladder all sweat oil, and at every touch the hands must be wiped dry. The doorways are narrow round holes. Through one of the holes, aft, the commander descends by a breakneck iron ladder into the black hole lit by electric glow lamps. The air is heavy with the smell of oil, and to the unaccustomed longshoreman it is almost choking, though the hatches are off. The submarine man breathes this air as if it were the purest ozone. Here, in the engine room aft, men must live and strain every nerve, even if for days at a time every crack whereby the fresh air could get in is hermetically sealed. On their tense watchfulness, thirty lives depend. Here, too, are slung some hammocks, and in them one watch tries, and, what is more, succeeds in sleeping, though the men moving about bump them with head and elbows at every turn, and the low and narrow vault is full of the hum and purr of machinery in length the vault is about ten feet but if a man of normal stature stands in the middle and raises his arms to about half shoulders height his hands will touch the cold moist steel walls on either side a network of wires runs overhead and there is a juggler's outfit of handles levers and instruments the commander inspects everything minutely then creeps through a hole into the central control station where the chief engineer is at his post with just about enough assistance to run a fairly simple machine ashore, the chief engineer of a submarine is expected to control, correct, and, if necessary, repair at sea an infinitely complex machinery which must not break down for an instant if thirty men are to return alive to the hulk. Forward is another narrow steel vault serving at once as engine room and crew's quarters. Next to it is a place like a cupboard, where the cook has just room to stand in front of his doll's house gallery stove. It is electrically heated, that the already oppressive air may not be further vitiated by smoke or fumes. A German submarine, in any case, smells perpetually of coffee and cabbage. Two little cabins of the size of a decent clothes chest take the deck and engine room officers, four of them. Another box cabin is reserved for the commander, when he has time to occupy it at daybreak the commander comes on deck in coat and trousers of black leather lined with wool a protection against oil cold and sea-water the crew at their stations await the command to cast off machines clear calls a voice from the control station and clear ship snaps the order from the bridge then cast off the cables slap on to the landing stage the engines begin to purr and u forty seven slides away into open water a few cable lengths away another submarine appears homeward bound she is the u twenty returning from a long cruise in which she succeeded in seeking a ship bound with a cargo of frozen mutton for england good luck old sheep butcher sings the commander of u forty seven as a sister ship passes within hail
The seas are heavier now, and U-47 rolls unpleasantly as she makes the light ship and answers the last salute from a friendly hand. The two officers on the bridge turn once to look at the light ship already astern, then their eyes look seaward. It is rough, stormy weather. If the eggshell goes ahead two or three days without a stop, the officers in charge will get no sleep for just that long. If it gets any rougher, they will be tied to the bridge rails to avoid being swept overboard. If they are hungry, plates of soup will be brought to them on the bridge, and the North Sea will attend to its salting for them. Frequently, this meal is interrupted by some announcement from the watch, such as, smoke on the horizon off the port bow. Then, so we are told, the commander drops his plate, shouts a short, crisp command, and an electric alarm whirs inside the eggshell. The ship buzzes like a hive. Then water begins to gurgle into the ballast tanks, and the U-47 sinks until only her periscope shows. The steamship is a Dutchman, sir, calls the watch officer. The commander inspects her with the aid of a periscope. She has no wireless and is bound for the continent. So he can come up and is glad because moving under the water consumes electricity and the usefulness of a submarine is measured by her electric power. After 54 hours of waking nerve tension, sleep becomes a necessity. So the ballast tanks are filled and the nutshell sinks to the sandy bottom. This is a time for sleep aboard a submarine, because a sleeping man consumes less of the precious oxygen than one awake and busy. So a submarine man has three principal lessons to learn, to keep every faculty at tension when he is awake, to keep stern silence when he is ashore, there is a warning against talkativeness in all the German railway carriages now, and to sleep instantly when he gets a legitimate opportunity. His sleep and the economy of oxygen may save the ship. However, the commander allows half an hour's grace for music. There is a gramophone, of course, and the ship's band performs on all manner of instruments. At worst, a comb with a bit of tissue paper is pressed into service. Another American who suffered an enforced voyage on an Unterseeboot made public later some of his experiences. His captor's craft was a good-sized one, about 250 feet long, with a crew of 35 men and mounting two four-and-a-half-inch guns. She could make 18 knots on the surface and 11 submerged and had a radius of 3,200 miles of action. Her accommodations were not uncomfortable. Each officer had a separate cabin while the crew were bunked along either side of a narrow passage. The ventilation was excellent, and her officers declared then they could stand 24 hours continuous emergence without discomfort. After that, for six hours it was uncomfortable, and thereafter intolerable because of the exudation of moisture, or sweating, from every part. At such times, all below have to wear leather suits. The food was varied and cooked on an electric stove. The original stores included preserved pork and beef, vegetables, tinned soups, fruits, raisins, biscuits, butter, marmalade, milk, tea, and coffee. But the pleasures of the table depended greatly on the number of their prizes, for whenever possible they made every ship captured contribute heavily to their larder before sinking her. Of the tactics followed, the observer writes, It appears that 55% or more than half of the torpedoes fired missed their mark, and with this average they seem satisfied. Once they let go at a ship two torpedoes at 3,000 yards range, and both missed, the range being too long, but they did not care to come any nearer, as they believed the ship to be well armed. 
They prefer to fire at 500 to 700 yards, which means that at this range the track or wake of a projectile would be discernible for, say, 25 to 30 seconds, not much time indeed, for any ship to get out of the way. At 100 yards range or less, they do not care to fire unless compelled to, as the torpedo is nearly always discharged when the submarine is lying ahead of the object, i.e., to hit the ship coming up to it. It follows that a gun forward is more useful than one aft, the gun aft being of real service when a submarine starts shelling, which she will do for choice from aft the ship rather than from forward of her, where she would be in danger of being run over and rammed. End of Aboard a Submarine Recording by William Tomko